Have you ever found yourself resonating with the words that were spoken by the prophet Jeremiah? There in in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, the prophet asked this question. He said, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Have you ever asked that question? Oh, maybe you didn't phrase it in that way, but when you saw that ungodly person that at your work, get that promotion. Did you find yourself asking the question, Lord, maybe saying to the Lord, Lord, that just isn't fair. Man, that, that guy is ungodly. That gal, she's, she's a jerk. She's hard to work with. Lord, how come they're getting the promotion and I'm getting passed over again? Have you ever pondered out loud, Lord, what is going on? It seems like the ungodly people around me are getting away with murder. And sometimes it feels like they're getting away with that literally. But we see this everywhere, don't we? We see it in politics, corrupt politicians getting their way. We see it in business, people that that you work with cutting corners and yet getting ahead. You see it in youth sports programs, parents who are, are bribing and bending the system to get their kids more playing time, even when they're not the better players on the team. You see it in college admission programs. Maybe you had this happen to you where you were totally qualified in every way to get accepted into that college, but you were rejected yet again. It's true. We see corruption all around us, and it's easy to say in our hearts, Lord, how about a little justice? You know, on Wednesday, my wife and I were driving up from Corvallis to Portland, where on Thursday we were going to be catching our flight home. As we were on the I-5 freeway, there was a guy in a blue Ford F-150 who was driving behind us. And this guy, you could tell, he was in a hurry. He was on my tail. And I wasn't going slow. Now, I wanted to, like, slow down, you know, <laughs> just to aggravate him. But I could tell, man, this guy's in a hurry. I'm going to get out of his way. So I got out of his way, and so I'm in this lane, he's in this lane, and he gets up behind a semi-truck. And again, he's riding his tail now. Well, the, the I-5 freeway comes to a point where it merges with the 205 freeway, and you have to take the 205 to head toward the airport. So we're driving in this lane. He's in this lane. He's behind the semi-truck, and all of a sudden, it comes to that, that merge, and the semi-truck goes straight, staying on the I-5, and this guy just punches it to get on the 205. Well, to get on the 205 right there, it's a long turn, and this guy was going so fast that the velocity of his truck started pulling him right toward the guardrail. And we're watching as this is unfolding, and I'm just thinking, there's, here comes a wreck right in front of us. He's on the shoulder. He's in the dirt. Dirt's flying up everywhere. He's trying to get control. The truck is wobbling, and, and I was expecting him to hit that guardrail and carry him and just start rolling right in front of us. Thankfully, that didn't happen. He was able to pull it together. 
and get back on the road. And you would think, having a close call like that, it would have caused him to slow down. But it didn't. He just punched it. He was going like 110. And he's weaving in and out of traffic. And, and it was just, it was, it was nuts. I called the highway patrol. I did. I said, hey, there's this guy on 205 and a blue F-150, and he's driving crazy. He's going to cause an accident. Now, i got to say that I was thankful as we, I mean, he, he was going so fast that in a couple of minutes, he was out of our sight. And I was thankful because I was fully expecting as we were kept going down the freeway that we were going to come up on a horrible accident. And I'm thankful that that did not happen. But I'll tell you, I was a little disappointed as we were driving up 205 that I didn't see him pulled over on the side of the road getting a ticket. I got to tell you, I, I, was, I was really hoping, you know. Like, guy, Pastor Rob, you're so mean. Uh, no, I mean, I was just, I'm just telling you in my heart, it was like, that guy, he needs to be stopped. But then I thought, as we kept driving and didn't see him pulled over, that, oh, another reckless driver escapes again. It happens all the time. In so many arenas, the ungodly prosper, and it seems like they're getting away with everything, while those of us who are trying to live godly, those of us who are trying to honor God, end up struggling. You know that saying, nice guys always finish last. Man, that seems like a reality so many times in so many days. And if you've ever felt that way, Psalm 37 is for you. Psalm 37 reveals the character of the person who is trusting in God in the face of apparent prosperity of the wicked. The psalm was written by King David in his old age, and in it he's reflecting on the plight of the wicked as well as the righteous and God's dealing with both of them. And we could sum up the first half of this psalm in this way, that he's instructing us to do two things, to first of all look ahead, and secondly to look up. I want you to notice in the first 11 verses that David gives us two negative directives. The first negative directive is found there in verse 1 when he says, Do not fret because of evildoers. And that directive is actually repeated three times for emphasis. We see it in verse 1, verse 7, as well as in verse 8. Do not fret. Now, we could say and phrase it this way, don't get heated up. Don't get all worked up about something. Or we could even say, hey, just be cool. Or even this way, just chill. In fact, look at the person next to you in the coolest way as you can. Just say, just chill. Just tell them that, all right? That's the idea here. He's saying, hey, just, just chill out. When you see all this going on, hey, don't fret. Don't get worked up. Just, just, just stay calm. And the second negative directive he, we see he gives us is in verse 8 when he says, and cease from anger. 
And I want you to notice those words, cease. It's the idea of stop being angry. And here's what we need to understand. That anger in and of itself is not sin. Anger is an emotion. Anger anger is a reaction. Anger in and of itself is not sin. In fact, the Bible even talks about there are times when we can experience what the Bible calls righteous anger. And I think that happens. You know, I'll be honest, when I was on the freeway and that guy was driving crazy, there was an anger that welled up in me. Like, that guy is going to kill somebody. Somebody needs to stop him. And when we experience and we see injustice going on around him, oftentimes that's our reaction is we, we get angry. That's a normal reaction. But what David is saying is don't stay angry because it'll ruin you. Look at verse 8. He says, cease from anger and forsake. Do away with wrath. Don't fret because it only causes So these are the two negative directives he gives us. Don't fret because of evildoers. Cease from anger. But here's the question. How do we do that? How do we do that in this world where we see just so much injustice taking place all around us? How do we keep from from fretting, getting fearful when it seems like the wicked are getting ahead? How do we keep from getting angry Well, David tells us, the first thing he tells us is that we need to look ahead. Look at, in fact, let me read to you verse 1 again. I want to read it in the new, the NIV, the New International Version. Just listen while I read it. It Puts it this way. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong for... Or because, like the grass, they will soon wither, and like the green plants, they will soon die away. I want you to notice that word, soon. You see, it's like the Lord is saying to us right now, hey, I know it seems like those who are ungodly are on top, that they're the ones who are winning, but they are soon, everybody say soon, soon, Soon. they are soon going to wither, and they are soon going to die off. And guys, this is where we need to remember that God's time frame is different from our time frame. You see, David says that this is going to happen soon, and we want to say, Lord, but it's not soon enough. We say, Lord, you know, please come quickly when we see all the chaos going on in our world. We say, Lord, you promise that you're going to come back and reclaim this planet and set things right and, and, and take things that are out of control and put things back in control. And we say, Lord, this doesn't feel like soon. This feels like forever. It's taking forever. This injustice, Lord, it's been going on a long, long time. But we're reminded in Scripture, it tells us that God's time frame is different from ours, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so we look at, we're, we're living a little over 2,000 years from the time of Christ, and we think, man, it's been over 2,000 years, and God's going, eh, it's actually been a little over two days from my perspective. Just chill. Just relax. Just be patient. Now, Peter points out why the Lord 
is delaying. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter put it this way, speaking about the Lord's coming. The Lord really isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Note that. Peter says he's not being slow. He's not being slack about his promise, but he's literally being patient for you. And if you're here today and you are, don't know Jesus Christ or you're not walking with Christ or you're watching online and you don't have a relationship with God, Peter's saying, he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. That's what repentance is. It's doing a 180. It's turning from, I was going in this direction, away from God, and now I'm going to turn and go in this direction toward God. He's waiting for you. And you see, the Bible tells us, this is what we need to understand, that things here on planet Earth are going to get worse as we're heading toward the coming of Jesus Christ. And the writer here of the psalmist David is saying, hey, don't fret, you need to look ahead. You need to realize what's coming. And this is one of the reasons why our prophecy updates that that we've been doing are so important. We haven't done one this summer, but we're going to pick it back up on on actually Wednesday nights now instead of Sunday nights in September. The next one's going to be September 21st. And um, that's better for our staff and our children's ministry. That's why we're changing the night. But we're, it's important that we do this. And I, and I say this every single time that we have one, that the purpose of these is not to create within us a, a, a heart of, of escapism. Like, Lord, just get us out of here. Things are getting horrible. Or even to create within us a heart of vengeance where we're like, Lord, these evil people all around me, they, they need to be judged. But it's really to create within us as we see what's going on, a heart that is moved to activism because remember that god has us here he's keeping us here for a purpose for a reason that he wants to use our lives it's the purpose of these is to create within us a burden for the lost people that you live with and work with because we realize what's coming upon this planet is going to be horrific And the Lord is going to take his church out, I believe, before that happens. But he wants us to be salt and light and having an impact for his kingdom on the life of people around us. And that's the purpose of this. And this is what David is saying as, hey, you see the, the wicked prospering. Hey, remember to look ahead. See the big picture? Remember what's coming. Remember... What's happening? We know, you see, how the story ends. We know that Jesus wins. We know that love wins. So David says that we are to be looking ahead. That's how we deal with this. But also we are to be looking up. You see, the most important thing that we can do, listen to me, is to get our eyes off of the wicked around us to get our eyes off of the wickedness that is happening around us and even get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on to the Lord. And so in verses 3 through 7, he's going to tell us exactly how to do, it, do that by giving us four positive directives. 
We saw that he gave us two negative directives, don't fret and cease from anger. But then he also gives us four positive directives when he says in verse 3, to trust in the Lord. In verse 4, to delight yourself in the Lord. In verse 5 and 6, commit yourself to the Lord. And then in verse 7, to rest in the Lord. And this is what I want to break down in the rest of our time here today. But I want you to notice one more thing before we start to do that. Look at verse 11 again. Notice it says, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It should sound familiar to you because that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. In his teaching there on the Sermon on the Mount, where he gave what's called the Beatitudes. This is the third Beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. Now that word meekness or meek is one that we really don't use a lot in our day and age. And a lot of people think of meekness and they think of weakness. It sounds like somebody who's a pushover. But that's not what the word means at all. The word meek literally speaks of power under control. It's the picture of a wild stallion, a powerful horse that has been tamed. It's a horse that has all this power, but now it's under the control, the leadership of its rider. It's a massive ship that is powerful, moving through the the water that could just, you know, crush if if it were to pull into shore and just crush everything in its path. But it's under the control of the captain. That's meekness. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus didn't tell us there in Matthew chapter 5 what meekness is or even what it looks like. He just uttered, blessed are the meek, and the meek shall inherit the earth. But Psalm 37 does. In fact, we could say that Psalm 37 in the first half of this is an exposition on meekness. And it paints a picture for us of how the follower of God becomes a meek person. How the person who is following God handles adversity and deals with the injustice that is going on around them. And we'll see how that happens as we look at these four positive directives that David gives us in verses 3 through 11. And as we go through them, I want you to notice how one builds upon the other. So he begins in verse 3 by saying, trust in the Lord. The word trust is, the idea behind that is faith. It's the proper starting point for all right relationships with God. We are justified by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. It's putting our trust in God. And you see, a fretful heart is not a trusting heart. C.H. Spurgeon said this, that faith cures fretting. He said, sight is cross-eyed and views things only as they seem, hence her envy. But faith has clear optics to behold things as they really are, hence her peace. A fretful heart is not a trusting heart, but a trusting heart becomes more and more void of fear because the fear, as we're trusting in God, gets replaced by peace and joy. And that word trust literally means to cling to, 
It's to rely upon, to be completely dependent upon. It's saying, God, I am acknowledging that I am dependent upon you, not just for my salvation, but for everything in my life. Now, it's been said that faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. And our faith is in the Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. Our faith is in God, who the Bible says, if we've given our heart to him, he is our father, and he is a good, good father. And the Bible says that this is how God, this is his father's heart towards you, that his thoughts towards you are more than the sand. Think about that. How amazing is that? In fact, here's a homework assignment. Go down to the beach today or sometime this week. Get one of those little kid, kitty buckets. Scoop up a big thing of sand. Bring it home and pour it on your dining room table. <laughs> and just start counting, all right? And no, that's just one little bucket full of his thoughts towards you. That's how much he's into you. He's your father and he loves you. And the Bible says that his thoughts towards you are not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of good to give you a future and a hope. Some of you are thinking, yeah, God's thinking about me, but I know he's thinking bad things. No, he loves you. His heart is towards you. In fact, he so much is interested in your life. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, for some of you, that's not very hard for him, but, but think about that. That's how much he's into you. Thoughts outnumber the sand. His, his, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Our faith is in this God who the Bible says is faithful and true. In fact, we read in the book of Revelation that in heaven, that's the song that they're singing is faithful and true are your ways that from heaven's perspective, as they look at everything that God's, God does, it's like faithful and true. Lord, what you do and what you've done, it's right on. And so in the midst of the chaos going on around us, we can stay calm as we trust in our God. But I want you to notice that our trust is not a passive trust. It's an active trust because he says, trust in the Lord and do good. You see, truth, faith is actively obedient. It's an active trust. It's not passive. And doing good is a great remedy for fretting. Because in doing good, in serving, we are actively partnering with God in his mission in the world. And so what he's describing here is the person who is actively trusting God and thus experiencing God's life and power. And as they're experiencing God's life and power in their life, they're then sharing that and expressing that to those who are around them. And have you ever noticed Have you ever noticed that when you get invested in someone else's life, your problems suddenly seem really small? You ever notice that? Or sometimes you even just, you get get involved in somebody else's life and, and, and you just forget about your problems. And in light of what's going on in that person's life, your problems just are, are so small. You know, years ago when I would go to a pastor's and leader's conference, I would go with this sense, this prayer. It'd be like, Lord, 
Man, just I want to be refreshed. Lord, I'm going here. I just need to be refreshed. Lord, I want, I want you to speak to me at this. Lord, I pray that you would just bring somebody along that would you know, just speak a word into my life. That was my heart as I was going to a, a conference. But I had a shift happen several years ago. Because so often I'd go to a conference and, and I just would walk away kind of frustrated. I'd feel like, you know, gosh, I really didn't feel like I really got spoken to in the message. And, and you know, no one came and talked to me or asked me how I was doing, you know. And that, that, that type, little pity party, you know, kind of a thing. So I had a, a switch. It just that happened. As I was going to a conference, it was like, Lord, I just pray that you would use me. That I could maybe just have divine appointments and, and you'd bring some people into you know, my life that you want me to just minister to and reach out to. And, and, and he would do that. And I would walk away like this past week feeling so much more refreshed, even though he would speak to me and he would touch my heart, but, but he would use me and that in other people's lives. And suddenly as I'm getting involved in what's going on in somebody else's life or someone else's church, it makes my problems just seem so much small and go away. And suddenly I'm, I'm ministering to someone and, and I'm walking away from that feeling just so incredibly refreshed by the Lord. Because of those divine appointments. And you know, I just want to say this. I think for some of you, maybe here today, you need to start coming to church like that. Because you're coming, oh Lord, speak to me today through whoever's teaching. And, and Lord, I pray that somebody and, and would reach out to me. And, and maybe you say, Lord, I pray that as I come to church today, give me some divine appointments. Let me be your vessel and watch and see what he does. It's been transforming for me. In such a powerful way. And I want you to notice the end of verse 3. Where he says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And in the King James Version, that sounds like two more directives. That were to dwell and were to feed. But in the original language, it's stated more as the result of trusting and doing good. It should read this way. Then you will dwell in the land. Ideas, be at home in the land. And you will be feeding on or enjoying the faithfulness of God. It's a result. The New Living Translation really gets it right when it says, then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Putting it simply, trusting in God and doing good, seeking to serve Him and be His vessel, leads to experiencing the fullness of God in your life in every way. Which leads then to the next directive in verse 4 when he says, delight yourself also in the Lord. That word delight means to find pleasure in the Lord. We can put it this way, to make Jesus the joy and rejoicing of your heart. But I want you to note that he says, delight yourself. He doesn't just say delight, but he makes this very, very specific. Delight yourself. And what he's telling us is that this includes a deliberate redirection of our emotions. F.B. Meyer put it this way, we cannot delight thus without effort. We must withdraw our eager desires from the things of earth, fastening and fixing them on him, on Jesus. And so this really involves delighting yourself in the Lord. This really involves what you choose to focus on. And this is one of the reasons why Philippians 4.8 is a 
powerful verse in my life. A necessary reminder in my life. Paul writes there, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And the idea behind meditate is be intentional about redirecting your focus. I have to do that. Because you know why? I'm really, really good at focusing on the negative. I'm really, really good at focusing on what's wrong. I'm really, really good at focusing on what God isn't doing in my life or in our church instead of focusing on what He is doing. And so I have to be very, very intentional about my thought life to focus on what is good and what is lovely and what God is doing in my life and in the life of others. I have to be very, very intentional about focusing on God's heart for a situation. So he says, delight yourself. Be intentional in your thought life. And you know why a lot of Christians do not delight in God? It's because they don't know Him very well. And they don't know Him very well because they don't spend very much time with Him. But listen, the more time that we spend with Him, focusing on His attributes and who He is, the more we come to know Him. And the more we come to know Him, the more we find ourselves trusting in Him. And the more that we find ourselves trusting in Him and seeing His faithfulness, the more that we find ourselves then delighting in Him. And we find ourselves walking away going, man, my God is an awesome God. And I want you to notice the promise that he gives us in verse 4 when he says, delight yourself also in the Lord. And then he says this, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That does not mean that if you are delighting in God, he's just going to give you everything that you want. That's not what that's saying. Oftentimes we think that, like God's like the genie in the bottle, that if I'm just doing the right things, he's going to give me whatever I want. No, that's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is this. In fact, it could, could actually read in this way, that God's going to take your desires and begin to mold and shape them into his desires. It's saying that as you trust in him and delight in him, Something happens to you and something happens in you that affects your desires and your desires, which maybe were this way, suddenly start to be molded into God's desires and God's plan for your life. I've had this happen so many times in my life. In fact, I would not be here. I would not be a pastor. I would not be your pastor if, if I had my plan and, and I, if I was following my desires because this was the furthest thing from my mind that this was God's plan for my life. But I got to tell you, as he's molded and changed those desires over the years and he's molded and changed and directed my life, I am so happy I couldn't imagine myself now doing anything else. 
I'm so blessed. I tell people all the time, man, I am so blessed to be the pastor at Calvary Vista. You guys are just an amazing family to be a part of. And I feel that way. But I've had so many times and so many things in my life where where I was thinking that, okay, this is what God's doing. But as I'm delighting in him and trusting in him and drawing near to him, that he starts just changing my desires. And I believe, listen to me, this is a word for some of you here today. That God is saying, hey, you need to trust me. I want you to delight in me, to stop resisting me, because this is what you've been doing. You've been trying to mold God into your plans instead of allowing him to mold you into his plans. And this is what you're going to find as you stop doing that. He says, hey, I want you to take my yoke upon you. And understand that my yoke is easy. And that word easy, it literally means it's well-fitting. And my burden is light. And that's the beauty of this, is that you find yourself walking in a way, and as you're living in this relationship with God, where you're suddenly like, okay, God, I never could have imagined what you were going to be doing, but this fits. I see it now. And then that leads to the next directive there in verse 5, when he says, commit your way to the Lord. Now, understand, David is not being redundant here. In our English language, we could, you know, read it in a way where commit just sounds like another way to say trust, but that's not what this word means. Listen, the word commit here actually means to roll one's way onto God. Just like that. Roll one's way onto God. Another one commentator I read said this, dislodge the burden from your shoulders and lay it on God. It's when you come to that place, you say, God, I am so tired of carrying this. Would you carry it? And he's like, absolutely. Absolutely. I would be glad to do that. This is what Peter meant when he says there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares or your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Can I encourage you today? Dislodge the burden dislodge the burden that you've been carried. And note this, God is not burdened by your burden. Isn't that great? I mean, I'll be honest with you, I can get burdened by other people's burdens, especially when I'm carrying my own burdens, and I see somebody else who's carrying a burden, and I want to run from them instead of reaching out to them because I'm thinking, you know, man, my burden's too heavy for me. I can't take on your burden. God never feels that way. God is never in that place where it's like, oh, you know, I got too much on my plate right now. I can't handle your burden that you are carrying. No, he's never burdened by your burden. Sometimes my grandson Josiah will be struggling to open something or to carry something. Now, now he's only four. And I'll say to him, Josiah, do you want my help? Hey, buddy, you want my help? He's like, no, I can do it. That's what he says. And I just sit back and I just watch him. And I just smile as I watch him just struggling and struggling and struggling, trying to get that. Now, the thing about Josiah is I rarely have to ever ask twice. Because about five minutes go by and he'll be like, Poppy, that's what he calls me. Poppy, can you help me? (laughs) And I'm like, absolutely. Come here, let's do this. Wanting to help him. 
I think God is smiling at some of you today as you are struggling with your burden. And he's been watching, and he's been patiently waiting, wondering when you're going to give that to him. Now, he's asked you five or six times already, and you're like, no, I've got this. And I just want to say to you today, will you let that Will you commit that thing to the Lord and lay your burden down? Will you cast that care? Will you dislodge that burden, knowing and believing that he is the father who loves you and cares for you? And get this, God doesn't take our burden so that we can become lazy and irresponsible. He takes our burden so that we can serve him better. Isn't that awesome? He's saying, look, I want to take that off of your plate because I've got something else for you. I've got something that's going to bless you that I want to use your life in. So again, notice the progression here. We're trusting in the Lord, in his power, in his love, in his willingness, and his ability. And then that leads to delighting in the Lord and who he is and how he works and his love for us. And then that leads to committing our ways to him, just rolling our burden onto him because his arms and his hands and his strength is capable. And then that leads to the next thing, the final thing in verse 7, when he says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Some translations put it this way, to be silent, to stop complaining, stop talking. It's resting. And God's saying, look, I've got this. I've got you. And this is a great picture of meekness. It's understanding. I have power in and of myself to do something, to carry something. But it's coming to that place where it's saying, okay, but I don't want to do that because, God, I don't want to do this on my own anymore. I've done it so often. Lord, I want you to lead. And so that becomes meekness, power that is under control. And God moves. And God works. So meekness is a willingness in the face of injustice to trust the Lord and delight in the Lord and to roll the problems, the things we see going on in our world of saying, God, I'm giving this to you. And guys, this is so freeing because it fills your heart with a sense of peace of saying, God, this world, it's your problem, but it's not just freeing. It also releases you to do good because, listen, it brings you to a place where you say, okay, I can't do anything about that, but I can do this. And so, Lord, I'm going to walk in what you have given to me. And so he says, look up. Put your eyes on the Lord, trusting in him, delighting in him, committing your ways to him, resting in him. And then notice he comes back to this idea of looking ahead by giving us a series of contrasting statements about the righteous and the wicked. Look at verse 9. He says, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, what does it mean? We'll close with this. That the meek, the person who's trusting in the Lord, will inherit the earth. What does that mean exactly? Well, there's a future 
inheritance that this is speaking of for sure. That when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, the Bible says that you and I are co-heirs with Jesus Christ and we are going to be given a place in his kingdom. So there's definite, this is definitely a future promise, but there's also a present reality that we can experience. It's when we realize that this world doesn't belong to us, but it belongs to God. And so when we realize that, we're not trying to possess things that are not ours to possess anyway. And this is where the ungodly get it wrong, is they they think that they can possess something that isn't theirs to possess, and this is one of the reasons why they're never, ever satisfied. But we who are trusting God and delighting in the Lord, when we realize, hey, everything belongs to God, and most importantly, I belong to God, what happens is any earthly blessing that he gives us It just becomes the icing on the cake. Because the beauty, the cake is, Lord, I've got you. And I don't need anything else. And so we come to that place today where we recognize a lot of crazy going on in our world. And what is God's word to us? Hey, look ahead. You know what's coming. And look up. Keep your eyes on me. Amen?